millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oh, hey, remember this? Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Biden. Facing an impeachment inquiry for privately urging a foreign leader to investigate Joe Biden. Today, President Trump unprompted publicly urged another foreign power to do the same. What about this unforgettable classic? As they said, they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. President Putin was extremely strong and powerful. And this one. The only difference is I didn't do it. You take a look at that call. It was perfect. I didn't do it. There was no quid pro quo. What about this one? Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. And you probably just blacked this one out. Bolton claims President Trump asked the Chinese president to help him win re-election. Writing this about President Trump during a meeting last June, quote, Mr. Bolton described several episodes where the president expressed willingness to halt criminal investigations, to, in effect, give personal favors to dictators he liked. It's staggering. The stories about notorious foreign powers with influence over Donald Trump never seemed to end. They emerged while he was still a candidate, and he never denied them. He fueled those stories, and they kept going. The last allegations of foreign influence, the ones you just heard from Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, surfaced during his final year in office. And how did Trump respond to these serious allegations from his own advisor? These are just dishonest, terrible people. I'm telling you that. Terrible. The fake, fake, disgusting news. That's right, by attacking the press. Blaming the media was one of Trump's most consistent moves, and it was his go-to response to any allegation of collaboration with the Kremlin or improper foreign interference in his election. In this episode, we consider the problem of foreign interventions in American political campaigns and what to do about them. And we're also going to look at how Trump blocked and tackled the free press, especially when it reported on Trump's foreign ties. The goal in this episode is to determine how the presidency and the press might be better protected from interference and intimidation in the future. This is After Trump, Episode 2, The Enemy of the People. (laughs) 
The broadsides aimed at top officials from the Justice Department raised questions about the president's relationship with Attorney General Jeff Sessions. President Trump is engaged in the most direct, sustained assault on a free press in our history. I'm going to continue to attack the press. Look, I find the press to be extremely dishonest. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. Shocking statements on the rule of law in the United States of America. They just don't want to report the truth, and they've been calling us wrong. Then I have an Article 2 where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. No president of the United States, Republican or Democrat, has ever, ever crossed that line. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. It is certainly true that uh, foreign state interference in the electoral and democratic process is a concern as old as the republic. No question about that. That's the voice of Bob Bauer, one of the authors of After Trump. Bob was White House counsel under President Barack Obama. Of course, presidents by and large uh, and presidential candidates have not, generally speaking, made known their desire to form those kinds of alliances for their own purposes. The problem of foreign state influence over an American president is nothing new. In fact, it's one that concerned the founders a great deal. Back then, of course, America was weak. The foreign powers were strong. And democracy was a radical and often tenuous experiment. As the country grew stronger and more robust, the fear of foreign influence diminished. But it never entirely went away. And there are striking cases of presidents or presidential candidates making secret deals with foreign actors. There was an exceptional example of this in 1968 when Richard Dixon, not yet a president, but a presidential candidate, entered into an understanding with the South Vietnamese government essentially to scuttle the peace talks that were underway to end the Vietnam War. And did so not because, as far as I know, he was unhappy with the direction they were headed, but because Nixon believed that a peace agreement before the November election would redound potentially decisively to the benefit of his Democratic opponent. But here's the thing. When President Nixon did this, he didn't give a public speech in which he said, Vietnam, if you're listening, I hope you can scuttle the peace talks that are happening. This was on a different magnitude. Nixon didn't brag about it. He denied it. Uh, he was called at one point, as I recall, by Lyndon Johnson and asked about this. Johnson knew what the facts were, but he gave Nixon an opportunity to hear that he, Johnson, knew. And Nixon, of course, said it would be a terrible thing if anybody did anything like that. Donald Trump is exceptional in the history of the presidency in questioning why he would ever turn away an offer of support from a friendly foreign government that was looking to fashion a strategic political alliance with an American president or presidential candidate. He said he saw no reason why, if offered, for example, opposition research on an opponent, uh, he wouldn't uh, accept it. Should he have gone to the FBI when he got that email? Okay, let's put yourself in a position. You're a congressman. Somebody comes up and says, hey, I have information on your opponent. Do you call the FBI? I if don't it's think, coming from I'll Russia, you, what, you do. I've seen a lot of things over my life. I don't think in my whole life I've ever called the FBI. This is somebody that said, we have information on your opponent. Oh, let me call the FBI. Give me a break. Life doesn't the work FBI that way. The FBI director says that's what should happen. The FBI director is wrong. 
Uh, and of course, we know that in June of 2016, the senior staff of his campaign, and he's never disavowed what they did, understood that the Russian government was sending a delegation to offer support, both in principle and in the specific form of opposition research. And the entire senior campaign assembled to receive them and hear what they had to say. And their only complaint thereafter was that the goods delivered were not as advertised. So why do we care about foreign interference in our electoral process? The American political system is awash in dark money and sometimes quite twisted attempts to influence voters. We have no idea where much of this influence is coming from, even when it's made right here in America. Who cares if a bit of influence spills in from elsewhere? Well, there's reason to care. There are a number of distinct concerns that gnawed at the founders, and they gnaw at lawmakers and jurists even now. These are the concerns that surface when they talk about foreign interference. The first is foreign influence of the electoral process. For example, efforts by foreign governments to sway America's choice of leaders by hacking election infrastructure. This kind of the idea of foreign interference, this didn't just start in 2016. Uh, It's been going on forever. This is Peter Strzok. Peter was a deputy assistant director of the counterintelligence division. He also led the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections. If you followed the Trump administration closely, you no doubt remember him. From the very beginning, I think there was concern about whenever you're a colony of Great Britain, um, the the desire in declaring independence is how you ensure that, in fact, that independence is uh, what it purports to be. When there are foreign actors engaging in malicious activity on American soil, Peter's former team at the FBI is tasked with investigating these activities. And so eliminating foreign influence, and you know, first and foremost, from uh, the crown, but also all the surrounding powers, whether that's the, the Spanish or the French or, you know, any number of other countries was of paramount importance in a lot of the discussions uh, of the founders. And you can see it throughout the Federalist Papers about the scourge of foreign influence and wanting to both identify it and prevent it from happening. This isn't a new discovery. There are entire sections of the criminal code, divisions of federal agencies, and even paragraphs in the Constitution designed to guard against it. But that doesn't stop foreign actors from trying to crack the Americans safe. The rewards are just too great. Every foreign nation has its, one of its primary collection requirements is to figure out the the workings and the plans and intentions of the presidency. I mean, that is the chief executive of the United States as a foreign intelligence target. There is no higher goal than to get inside the thinking of the president of the United States. So from time immemorial, you know, every single foreign intelligence service worth its salt is going to be trying to understand not who's running for president, but before that, who's campaigning for president, who's looking to campaign in four, eight, or 12 years, who the up-and-comers are. As Peter says, there have always been attempts at infiltrating the U.S. government. There have always been nations trying to curry favor with elected officials. But with Trump's hospitality to foreign powers, even hostile ones, such attempts became much bolder and much more successful. And for us, the worst case that we couldn't eliminate was that Trump himself was a witting agent of the government of Russia, that he had been recruited, that he was clandestinely talking with them and being directed. Now, none of us thought that that was likely at all, but we couldn't eliminate it. 
And that's a horrifying prospect. When the nation fell under the pall of investigations into foreign electoral interference, shockwaves roiled the Justice Department. This was something no one sworn to uphold the Constitution had ever seen before or even imagined. The president was actively resisting law enforcement and publicly voicing his contempt for those in and out of government who were cooperating with investigations. So as a counterintelligence professional, when you're sitting there trying to, first and foremost, protect the United States of America, figure out what these foreign nations are doing in terms of clandestine intelligence activity and protect the United States, and you get all these people where you can see them going out, doing things inimical to that goal, it's an extraordinary challenge. And we quickly found, you know, some of that bumps up very rapidly, you know, when you start talking about the president himself on the, on the boundary of the, the FBI's authority or the propriety of the FBI's activity. And it was challenging to say the least. A high-level investigation. Acting Attorney General asked me to serve as special counsel, and he created the special counsel's office. Challenging or not, the investigations opened in the Trump era led to a serious reckoning on what exactly we expect from those seeking positions of public trust. What are the obligations of someone, of a U.S. political candidate who becomes aware of potential violations. This is Susan Hennessy, executive editor at Lawfare. Susan has written extensively on the presidency in the Trump era. And as she says, there are unanswered questions that come to head when leaders start playing footsie with foreign interference. There's a real gap in the law, both in terms of a gap in the statutory law and also a gap in our normative expectations of how we expect the Department of Justice to act. This is where we get into the gears of our system, the ones that don't come with a handbook. Sure, there are mechanisms that can stop campaigns from soliciting help from foreign groups. And we have things like special counsels and committees and theoretically the whole Justice Department. Actually enforcing actions against a chief executive who doesn't seem to have a working set of moral breaks, well, it's not quite so black and white in practice. Because traditionally, the Department of Justice does not want to engage in investigations or prosecutions that themselves could have an impact on elections. They don't want to inadvertently interfere in an election or, or have an, an influence because of the sensitivities of the Department of Justice being part of the executive branch that, of course, the president, who is a member of a political party, controls at any given moment. Foreign influence is essentially a two-pronged problem. There's the open problem, hacking election systems, disrupting campaigns, and targeting officials. We know about these. These are the clear threats that the Justice Department has always tried to stay alert to. But in the Trump era, there's a twist. Americans willingly accepting, soliciting, and embracing those kinds of activities. And I will close by reiterating the central allegation of our indictments, that there were multiple, systematic efforts to interfere in our election. And that allegation deserves the attention of every American. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. 
As Bob explains, hacking election systems is already illegal. The former special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, indicted a bunch of Russian hackers under existing law. He even managed to prosecute the Russian organizations that pulled off social media manipulations in 2016. So at least as to foreign actors, it's not clear how much work the Justice Department can do. But there's a group of people Mueller couldn't prosecute under existing law. The stateside figures. The ones who took Russian help gleefully. My takeaway when all of this was going on is that someone has information on our opponent. You know, things are going a million miles an hour. You know what it's like to be on a campaign. And hey, wait a minute. I've heard about all these things, but maybe this is something. I should hear him out. What do you do about these people? Which is where Bob and Jack come in. So it seemed that uh, given the expanded capability of foreign interests uh, and foreign states to interfere in the electoral process and the imperious embrace of those kinds of alliances uh, by a presidential campaign, namely the presidential campaign of Donald Trump in 2016, the time had come to look at the weaknesses and the holes in the law and to reform so that this sort of thing couldn't happen again in the future. Quick note, this voice is not Donald Trump's. It's the voice of Lawfare Zone, Bryce Clem. The single greatest witch hunt in American history continues. There was no collusion. Everybody, including the Dems, knows there was no collusion. And yet, on and on it goes. Russia and the world is laughing at the stupidity they are witnessing. Republicans should finally take control. Trump openly opined that getting foreign dirt on opponents and letting other countries play poltergeists in American campaigns, well, that's just super. He caught a lot of scorn for this, but all the head-shaking on Twitter didn't result in any meaningful intervention. And so the question before us now is, how do we ensure that a future president doesn't do the same thing, doesn't take this as a roadmap for engaging in future abuse, and in, and in particular, engaging in, a, in, in abuse that might secure his or her re-election, thus frustrating the will of voters. John Bolton, one of the dumbest people I've met in government, and sadly, I've met plenty, states often that I respected and even trusted Vladimir Putin of Russia more than those in our intelligence agencies. While of course that is not true, if the first people you met from so-called American intelligence were dirty cops who have now proven to be sleazebags at the highest level, like James Comey, proven liar James Clapper, perhaps the lowest of them all, wacko John Brennan, who headed the CIA, you could perhaps understand my reluctance to embrace. If we can take Trump, generally speaking, out of the conversation and apply what Jack and I call the golden rule, which is, which limitations would you want in place, regardless of whether your candidate won the election, regardless of whether the president affiliated with your preferences was in power, then I think we can proceed to a constructive reform debate because there ought not to be any disagreement that presidential candidates and presidents should not be conspiring with foreign states uh, to influence their election or re-election. Bob stresses that there's no perfect solution here. No question there is going to be uh, in addressing the question of foreign interference, there is going to be some frustration with complete success, achieving complete success, because, as I mentioned earlier, what the reforms have to focus on is a U.S.-based 
presidential campaign or candidate complicity. Let's focus here on the Trump Tower meeting. That meeting in July of 2016 when, uh, you can probably say it with me, Don Jr., Jared Kushner, and convicted, if pardoned, felon and Trump former campaign manager Paul Manafort met with Russian government officials promising compromise on Trump's then-opponent Hillary Clinton. You remember the Trump Tower meeting. We all remember the Trump Tower meeting. Don Jr., Jared Kushner, campaign chairman Paul Manafort, and that Russian lawyer. Answering questions from the House Intelligence Committee about that meeting at Trump Tower. For me, this was opposition research. If it's what you say, I love it. Most people would have taken that meeting. Is Donald Trump Jr. about to face indictment? Don Jr. has told friends in recent weeks that he believes he could be indicted. When Robert Mueller investigated this, he was left with a puzzle. There's no question the meeting happened. No question the Russians promised dirt on Clinton and that the Trump campaign, including the candidate's son, were chomping at the bit to make it happen. Mueller also had little doubt that the dirt was a so-called thing of value. That's what a foreigner is not allowed to give a campaign, and a campaign is not allowed to accept. But the Mueller team could not determine under current law whether all of this were actually illegal. The first step, Bauer argues, is fixing this. Let me begin with the easiest thing. And Jack and I mentioned this without suggesting that it does anything other than answer a question left in 2016. Mueller was troubled by the constitutional and other questions raised for him by classifying an offer of or a provision of opposition research from a foreign state to an American campaign as a contribution uh, in kind or the offer of a contribution in kind or the solicitation by the Trump campaign of a contribution in kind in the form of opposition research. He wasn't sure what to do with it. He cited Federal Election Commission authority to the effect that this would be considered a contribution under regulatory definitions, but he balked. He wasn't sure. And that would not be a difficult uh, problem to fix. And we suggest that it be absolutely clear that the generation of information by a foreign actor that the foreign actor believes will be useful to a domestic to to an American presidential campaign, strategically useful to a presidential campaign in its electoral efforts and its electioneering efforts, is a contribution. And because foreign nationals cannot make contributions in federal elections, it's a civil and a criminal offense. The solicitation of that information, the provision of that information would violate the federal campaign finance law. So this one's pretty easy, low-hanging fruit for reform. But closing this barn door is also, to mix metaphors, it's like fighting the last war. It's unlikely a foreign government's going to approach a campaign again and say explicitly, hey, want some dirt on the other side? Yes, this is an important loophole to close. But Bauer doesn't pretend it's going to do the trick to prevent foreign influence in the future. If a foreign actor does what the Russians did in 2016 and contacts a campaign, with the evident attempt of having a conversation about being supportive in that campaign, attempting to assist the candidate in winning the election, the campaign should have, and we set it out at length in some detail, a responsibility to report that contact to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The Trump campaign never notified uh, law enforcement 
that the Russians had expressed a clear-cut preference privately for the election of Donald Trump and offered to be assistance to him in the campaign. And that has to be legislated out of existence. That can't happen again. So how do you create a more general way to keep American campaigns from scheming with foreign actors? Trump was asked about this by George Stephanopoulos in June of 2019. Rather than walk back his comments, the president did the opposite, saying on Twitter, I meet and talk to foreign governments every day, mentioning the queen and asking, should I immediately call the FBI about these calls and meetings? How ridiculous. Whereas Bob and Jack's first proposal would restrict the assistance from a foreign actor, this proposal would address the response of American actors themselves. It would make it much harder to greet a foreign offer of campaign assistance the way Don Jr. did, emailing the Russian intermediary with those immortal words, if it's what you say, I love it. This proposal would make it not optional, but legally required that the next Don Jr. notify the FBI. But Bob and Jack don't stop there. There's another element of the plan. Uh, Reform number two that we think is important is an attempt to prohibit what we call strategic alliances between a presidential campaign and a foreign state actor. It is not enough simply to characterize an offer or the provision of, say, opposition research as a contribution and so prohibit it in that sense. The law should be clarified uh, so that the basic understanding a campaign may reach for campaign support from a foreign national be prohibited. And there is an existing statute that has to do with public officials not being permitted to act as agents of foreign nationals uh, for purposes of other federal laws, uh, that that be expanded so it reaches uh, a, what we call a, a strategic alliance between a candidate uh, and a foreign power seeking to help win an election. And it's codifying something explicit, where actors from all sides have made the law vague. If candidates in the Justice Department are unsure or are grappling with the line to enforce, making a law clarifying that, yes, if a foreign power tries to help, you go to the FBI. And being ambivalent about foreign interference on your behalf just might wind up making you an agent of that foreign power. Anxiety about foreign influence courses through the Constitution. As our world has gotten more interdependent and the ways foreign governments can interfere in each other's elections have multiplied, our system sorely needs more clarity. So now let's wade into something even more complicated. The fake media is trying to silence us, but we will not let them. The president is focused instead on attacking the media. You, yeah, I think you've set a, a new bar today for being contentious with the press corps, kind of calling us losers to our faces and all that. Is no, this No, not all of you, just many of you. All right, fine. On February 17th, the president tweeted, the fake news media is not my enemy, it is the enemy of the American people. Conflict between presidents and the media are nothing new. In fact, it's almost a staple of the modern presidency to have dust-ups with reporters. There's no question there have always been tensions and presidents have looked to fight back against what they thought was unfair or politically unhelpful press coverage. And in some cases, they've also uh, schemed uh, to lash back out at and make 
the press pay for that unfavorable coverage. I have never heard or seen such outrageous, vicious, distorted reporting in 27 years of public life. Don't get the impression that you arouse my anger. One can only be angry with those he respects. Reports of Nixon people saw the press as, you know, worthy additions to his fabled enemies list. Having said all of that, Donald Trump here, as elsewhere, took things uh, to a whole new level. Set aside, for example, the images, the continuous deriding of the press on Twitter. I mean, just ceaseless attacks on the press, including occasionally the use of and retweeting of parodic images of his beating up reporter. President Trump sending out a bizarre video, tweeting this mock video of himself tackling, then punching a man who represents CNN. Is the shocking image of the president physically attacking someone just comedy, or could it incite violence against the media? Oftentimes, the government steps outside its bounds to quash stories that unsettle it. But for the president to frame the press as the enemy of American interests and to encourage his followers to antagonize the fourth estate, that's a combustible combination and one that Trump reveled in from the very first day of his presidency. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. And this was Trump overshadowing Nixon in some cases to weaponize social media and express hostility toward journalists who were just asking legitimate questions. And he also uh, notably uh, quarreled with particular reporters, barring Jim Acosta from the White House briefing room, which led to litigation and suspending for extended periods of time uh, press briefings, White House press briefings, the really unfavorable press, and in some cases, I'm sure some of the unfair press that presidents experience. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. During the Trump era, these clashes took center stage. Gone were the inside baseball power plays between the president and the White House press corps. Trump made the media a full-on target of his animus. He repeated his anti-press war whoops at his rallies, his bilateral meetings, and even in his holiday addresses. You know you're a fake. You know that your whole network, the way you cover it, is fake. I wish we had a fair media in this country, and we really don't. The bully pulpit lives up to its name. From the podium, his mic ratcheted to 11, the president can set loose droves of angry supporters with a single Fraser tweet. There's only so much that you can do uh, about the way presidents treat the press or what they say about the press. Presidents can, for example, suspend White House press briefings and they can curry favor with some organizations and effectively send the word out to the rest of the government that they don't want senior officials dealing or treating at all with other press organizations. And they can make those choices out of peak or on the basis of ideological distinctions that they draw. However, that isn't to say that any of this is good and we should do what we can. And here again, we look to a mix of statutory and internal regulatory measures to see whether there is some way to reinvigorate the norm, but also to provide relief for the press and therefore relief in the interests of the larger public from uh, the worst instances of discriminatory or harassing behavior toward the press. Now, don't get nervous. Jack and Bob are not proposing abolishing the First Amendment. Far from it. Reform here might be appealing, but it isn't necessary. 
and it also isn't really possible. On the first point, the First Amendment already prevents the president from gagging the press. Though he gave it his all, Trump didn't ultimately manage to disrupt media coverage all that much. But the president enjoys the same protections, too. No regulation or law can prevent presidents from railing against the media or even tweeting playground taunts at media outlets or specific reporters. But there are things that can be done around the edges to improve the security of the press in covering the White House. We propose a three-pronged approach. One brings in the Congress, one brings in law, and one brings in internal regulation. Let me begin with internal regulation. There are regulations on the book that govern the security clearances that are required for the issuance of press passes. Uh, These regulations were at issue in the CNN's successful defense of uh, the Acosta press pass. CNN is suing the Trump administration after the White House revoked press credentials from CNN reporter Jim Acosta. Addressing a president's hostility toward the media is tricky. A lot of the solutions are just about civility, uniformity, and even physical security for the media. Bob and Jack have a few places to start. Another idea is to give the press redress when the president harasses them, threatens them, and tries to shut them out. If there are going to be regulations that govern the issuance and revocation of press passes, it's good to start there and to clarify those regulations so that they fundamentally function uh, to permit uh, bona fide press organizations that, for example, hold press passes in the House and the Senate to apply for them and expect to receive them in the White House subject to the normal functioning of the security clearance process. And there ought to be standards at work in those regulations that would make it difficult for the uh, administration uh, to revoke those press passes, for example. There's something else, too. What if Congress cared, or at least flexed some of the powers it has? More energy on the part of the Congress. Sam Irvin famously later became, of course, uh, quite celebrated as chair of the Senate Watergate Committee took a very strong interest in the executive branch's treatment of the press. The Congress uh, did uh, hold hearings on the conflict between the Nixon administration and the press. And we think there ought to be more congressional activity there where it becomes clear that the president, uh, a president of the United States and the executive branch that he or she leads is looking to silence or intimidate or harass critics in the press, does not recognize the function and and cannot tolerate the function of a free press in a democratic society. They're looking to uh, basically control it in a way that goes well, well beyond what we expect from legitimate press management on the part of an executive branch. They're acting in ways that threaten to make it difficult for the press to perform its historic function, and that imposes uh, severe costs and penalties on press organizations that are doing the job that they're expected to do. The higher the office, the louder the microphone, the greater the resources available to use carrots and sticks to try to turn the media into courtiers. While the president may be free to be as much of a jerk to the press as he wants, there are plenty of regulations that bind the activities of government employees. Jack and Bob argue that there are mechanisms for enforcing process and standards to government interactions with the press. The second has to do, and I think this is critically important, 
for providing that inspector generals through amendment uh, to their authorizing statute have the authority to investigate uh, and release publicly into the Congress instances of apparent harassment or intimidation, attempted intimidation or intimidation of the press. In other words, the use of official authority to attack or punish the press. And we have a complicated scheme to propose here because it's a difficult question. The Attorney General of the United States, DOJ, currently has regulations on the books that have to do with the circumstances, for example, in which the Department of Justice brings news organizations by compulsory process into criminal investigations. So there is a need to sort of take into account of that of the design of a reform like this. But we do think it's important that there be some place, and just by identifying it in statute, I think it sends a clear message that there should be some place where the government is responsible or accountable for attempting to uh, silence, uh, harass, or intimidate the press. This gets even trickier, though, when there are news outlets popping up that look much more like a propaganda factory than a journalistic endeavor. Mr. President, your approval ratings have been the highest they've ever been, as well as the ratings on your handling of the virus. Yet there are some networks that are saying they're debating whether or not to carry these briefings live. Do you think there's a link between the two? Well, I don't know. I know that, uh, uh, well, that's a nice question. Thank you very much. A couple of questions. Go ahead, OAN. We'll take a few questions. Uh, Emerald, OAN, OAN, please, OAN. OAN, OAN, OAN. With the rise of new media and the 24-hour news cycle, the pressure for politicians to run full-dress PR shops has grown much more intense. Making matters even more complicated, we're living in an age where individuals of all sorts have the ability to communicate to millions of subscribers and followers. So how do you delineate press from propaganda, disinformation from news gathering? There are, uh, for example, in the House and the Senate, uh, there are specific requirements for obtaining uh, credentials uh, to cover the House and the Senate. And we think the White House's uh, standards ought to align with the House and the Senate's. There, there's, there's going to have to be uh, some absorption of pain here, because we can also, by the way, find a midpoint between what we consider a bona fide news organization that's dedicated to traditional press facts gathering standards on the one hand, and an outrageous organization that's a pure propaganda network on the other. And then there's all sorts of stuff in between. And it's going to be very, very difficult uh, to manage toward an outcome that everybody's going to be satisfied with. But at the end of the day, if uh, an organization uh, is able to establish itself as that it operates as a press organization, it's engaged in independent fact gathering, Um, The question is going to be whether they comply with the rules for appropriate behavior in the White House press briefing room or on federal property. Without a doubt, some people are going to be unhappy with the outcome in some of these cases. All politicians are hyper aware of public opinion, of course, and they've got no choice but to worry about what the media says about them. There's always an incentive to court favorable press, even if that means using the bully pulpit to actually bully reporters. Tension between the president and the press is a durable and valuable feature of American politics. But Trump is not the first president to see his press as more enemy than rival, gunning for him, refusing to cover him or his opposition fairly, and confirming with every word its devotion to his political destruction. 
But in both Trump's incendiary rhetoric and his obsession with making the media a focus of his presidency, he exceeded his predecessors. And in doing so, he invited top-to-bottom reconsideration of the laws and norms that govern White House relations with the many and varied institutions that cover it. So many of the problems highlighted for reform in this episode come down to the reality distortion field a president can conjure. With speech act after tweet after insult after rallying cry, Trump made it nearly impossible for voters to understand what was going on. Trump was certainly unique in the brazenness with which he inserted fear, uncertainty, and doubt into our electoral system. But his demented trolling surfaced important questions. What responsibility does a president have to act in good faith on behalf of the American people? Can he, as Susan Hennessy says, play extensive footsie with hostile foreign powers? Can his interactions with the press only serve to bully and score political points? The president has responsibilities to faithfully execute the duties of his office. It might be time we articulate with just a little more clarity what exactly faithfully means. After Trump is based on the book After Trump, written by Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer from Lawfare Press. This podcast only scratches the surface of these topics. To learn more, to get in the weeds, pick up After Trump by going to aftertrumppod.com slash book. This podcast is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. The series is hosted and executive produced by me, Virginia Heffernan. From the Goat Rodeo team, scripting and audio production from Zachary Frank, editing by Ian Enright. This episode was written by me, by Benjamin Wittes, and by Zachary Frank. From the Lawfare team, production assistance from Rohini Korup and Bryce Clem. Benjamin Wittes is editor-in-chief. Subscribe to this series for more episodes of After Trump, and be sure to help our work by leaving us a rating and review. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.